0: Mm-hmm. So, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, tonight, um, some really good stuff, a really good chapter here that we get to go through, and uh, so I'm going to, uh, I'm actually going to all start by praying for us, and then we'll jump into it. Dear God, there is, uh, there is big stuff in this chapter. And and some, um, some heavy stuff and some stuff that is pertinent to us and our culture and our situation. And so Lord, for those of us who may have hard-heartedness in this area, for those of us who are comfortable with our sin, um, I pray that you would convict us and that you would uh, cut us deep with your word tonight. For those of us who are overwhelmed with shame in this area and uh, who are who are feeling grief where there need not be any, I pray that You would comfort us, that Your Spirit would do all these things, knowing each heart and knowing what each of us needs, that He would bring that to us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. 1 Thessalonians 4, and we are uh, starting right there at the beginning of it. Um, So far in this book, there's been very little, basically no instruction given. There haven't been hardly any commands um, that, that, that Paul has given to this church. Um, what we've had so far is Paul basically thanking God for them, thanking God to find out that they exist, that they're still going strong, that they're growing and that they're imitating Him, thanking God for the work He's done in their lives, um, reminding the Thessalonians of His ministry to them, and, and the way he worked among them, and the great love that he had for them, and then lastly, uh, telling them how much he longs to be there, and, and how he tried to get there, and how he wants to be there, um, but as he says, Satan has continued to hinder him from getting there, so he's sent Timothy at this point to be able to talk to them, and be able to um, convey these messages to him. Um, Last week, our text ended with this prayer in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Let me go ahead and read that to you. It said, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So first he says, I'm praying that God will clear the way for me to get to you. And then he prays for these two things, that they would abound in love for one another and that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness and, and it's that little prayer right there with those two key themes that actually lead Paul into his first set of instructions. This is what he's praying for them, this is what he's longing for them, and so now he's going to tell them a little bit about that and, and explain some of that. So um, let's go ahead and start reading that. Um, Rachel, do you want to read for us? Yeah. All right, other Rachel, sorry, I saw, I saw the like panic there. in your eyes there, Rachel. Um, <laughs> Verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Finally then, brothers,
1: we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your
0: sanctification. That's good. Um, So, he says this, finally, brothers, that, that word is actually kind of like a beyond this or beyond what I've already written. And in this situation, in this context, uh, finally is maybe not the best word um, because finally kind of implies a closing. Paul's only halfway through this letter. He's just getting to some of the commands and instructions. So this is, this is more of a beyond what I've already written you. It's a sign of transition, not a sign of closing. And, and Paul, he says here, he's not instructing them on things that they're missing. He's not really instructing them on things that they just don't get, or they're screwing up in. Like when you read um, the letters to the Corinthians, or when you read the letters to the Galatians, he's writing stuff that they are completely like missing the ball on. But but here he says these are things you're doing. I just want to encourage you to do so more and more to keep growing in these areas. Um, it should be pointed out, and and I don't know if we've said this yet, but anytime you see this word brothers there in in the In the text, uh, it's adelphoi, and that is, it's literally plural for brothers, but it is an implied brothers and sisters. And so when he says brothers, he's not only talking to the men and excluding all the women. It's sort of the same idea as me saying, hey, listen up, guys. I'm I'm saying, guys, everybody in here knows that I'm not just talking to the men. I'm talking to both. So he's saying to them, brothers and sisters, here's what I have to tell you. Um, Read just that very first sentence of verse 3, Rachel. For this is the will of God,
1: your sanctification.
0: There it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. When we talk about God's will... Um, primarily we refer to God's will as like a specific life path that is laid out for each of us. Something that we have to seek out. And so we, think, we say things like, um, I'm really trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. Or, or, or ask this question, how can I know what God's will is for my life? What is God's will? What does He want me to do? And we, we apply this to generally kind of life choices. Should I go to this school or this school? Should I have this major or this major? I'm really trying to seek God's will on that. Where does He want me to go after I'm done? And it's something that we're supposed to seek out and try to find. Primarily not exclusively, but primarily when the Bible talks about God's will, it talks about it not as something we seek out, um, but as something that is already revealed to us. And not as something that is a specific individual life plan that each of us have to figure out for ourselves, but it talks about God's will as something that, that is actually true for all of us. Something that you don't have to seek out. It's already revealed, and I can guarantee you God wants it from you. It's not just something that he's seeking God's will and she's seeking God's will and they're all trying to figure out. The Bible says this is God's will for you, your sanctification. The word is literally just holiness. What God wants from you is holiness, your holiness. Um, And He cares far more. This is really important. So when we talk about God's will, God's will and what He wants for you has a lot more to do with who you are becoming than where you are when you're becoming it, okay? With, with the kind of heart and person that he is shaping you to be, than, than the kind of career you have while you're doing those things. God, by and large, I believe this, doesn't, uh, I want to make sure I don't like overstate this too much, but doesn't care a whole lot what you are doing with your career. Um, don't sell drugs or be a pimp, okay? He probably, <laughs> he probably would care about that career choice, all right? But but honestly, between between engineer or lawyer, like it, there's, there's not a huge, we don't, we don't get anything. It says, no, you, if, if, you, if God wanted you to be an engineer and you choose lawyer, then you've completely disappointed him and you've gone off the rails and everything's falling apart. Um, we, we don't get that kind of stuff from God. No, primarily it's talking about who he is shaping you to be and, and there's a lot of places that you could go and be shaped that way. There's a lot of places where you could let his character shine forth in you in different careers and in different cities and in um, different ways of, of life or family, those kinds of things. Holiness, when we talk about what holiness is, a lot of people have different ideas. What does it mean to be holy? And, and the most kind of basic level of what holy means is set apart, different from the common thing. Um, but, but even that doesn't fully get what, what we're talking about here. It's set apart to God for His purposes. Um, and so when we talk about being holy, we're, we're essentially talking about becoming more and more like God becoming more and more, and the better, the better model is Jesus himself, who was God but was human. And so we get to model ourselves after his character and his competencies. This is holiness, the more I look like him. And that does actually shape some things, because that means that holiness is not simply about obeying a bunch of rules, although it is about obeying the commands of Scripture. But like Jesus is holy in the way that he loves people. Jesus is holy in His kindness. He's also holy in His purity, but but holiness encompasses way more than morality, or than avoiding bad things, although that's where a lot of actually our focus will be tonight. Um, Holiness can be a lot of things. Paul is going to focus about one specific area pretty strongly here in this section. He's going to define what he means by holiness. Rachel, go ahead and start at 3 again and read through 5.
1: body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who
0: do not know God. Alright, um, so here it is. Paul says, this is God's will for you, your holiness, colon, <laughs> let, me, let me flesh that out for you right here, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. That you would abstain from sexual immorality. Why that? Of all the things you could have talked about when you said... God wants holiness from you, so therefore, a hundred different things Paul could have mentioned, and he goes to sexual immorality. And commentators have wondered about this, and they've tried to figure out um, all kinds of, they've tried to explore all kinds of things in the background or in the history of Thessalonica that would maybe make Paul single out this specific area of sexual immorality, but most of the stuff that they try to find and figure out seems to be a bit of a stretch. Um, as they do those things. More than likely, it's not not something that just has to do with Thessalonica, but it is something that has to do with the Gentile world at this time. The pagan Greco-Roman empire at this time. Sexual immorality is rampant and is huge in this area. And it is actually probably important to note, does anybody remember where Paul is when he's writing this? Corinth. Corinth. And so if Paul needs any reminders about the ability for sexual immorality to take over a Gentile culture, all he's got to do is look out the front window of wherever he's staying because Corinth is known at that time for being one of the most immoral in the areas of sexuality, one of the most immoral um, cities in the world, although that's even kind of an interesting idea, known for being immoral. The Gentile world did not have nearly as much concept of sexual immorality as we do. Paul looks at it a lot. So, Paul has these things in his letters called vice lists. He's not the only one to do it. A lot of uh, writers at the time, moralists and ethicists did this and they would have these vice lists, just a list of things that characterize someone who's bad. Virtually every time at the top of the list, virtually every list, number one, first thing that gets mentioned in Paul's list to Gentile churches is sexual immorality. He knows that this is big for them. When the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 15 had to make the decision, can Gentiles be a part of the church? Can Gentiles, for for 2,000 years, the only people who were allowed to be part of God's people were Jews, and the Messiah was a Jew, and His apostles were Jewish, and the first church was Jewish, so are we sure that you can be a Christian, that you can be part of God's people and not be Jewish? After prayer and after testimony from another a number of people and after deliberating they decided yes the Holy Spirit is leading us to it Gentiles can be a part of this but there are a couple conditions and they sent out a letter to all these Gentile churches with Paul and it said we want you to abstain from a few different things one is um, idolatry one is uh, or food sacrifice to idols uh, the meat of strangled animals blood and then sexual immorality and, and all of those, especially the, the top three, um, have to do with idolatry specifically. Pagan, false god worship. Sexual immorality actually seems to run really closely along that. It was a big part of pagan worship practices back then. And so this was really, really huge. It was the air that the pagan world breathed. And, and this is... This was such a big deal, or so common and so normal. Um, from some stuff I'm studying today, and, and, and I think I'm getting this right, in classical Greek, so does anybody know what the word is for sexual immorality? Porneia, porneia from where we get the word pornography. Um, Pornea is the word. Um, it's used many times, multiple times, 20, 30 times in the New Testament. Um, it is used in classical Greek. It is used roughly eight times. And, and almost always referring to sleeping with a prostitute or adultery, maybe. Um, but actually, it's not actually used describing the whole sleeping with the prostitute. Um, it's, not, it's used to describe the person who would sell their body, the prostitute themselves. That person is committing porneia, but the dude who goes and sleeps with a uh, prostitute, not too big a deal. The male prostitute or the female prostitute, yeah, that, that may not be the best thing. But for this guy, I mean, at least, you know... Not, not, it, was, it was kind of understood to be not that big a deal. They didn't even use this word, sexual immorality, porneia. Like what, they had very little concept of sex being immoral in any way. And when Paul first comes to Thessalonica, the people that he's primarily converting, he goes into the synagogue. And so it's Jewish people who have an understanding of sexual immorality and what that is. And it's God-fearers. I don't know if you remember what that is. That's Gentiles who have not fully converted to Judaism, but they are wanting to worship the God of Judaism. And they are wanting to study the scriptures of Judaism. So they have an idea of what porneia is and, how to, and that they ought to avoid it. But right now the Thessalonian church is growing. And it's bringing in more and more people who have no background with the scriptures of the Israelites, and have very little concept of any sort of sex that would be seen as an awful or negative thing. And Paul is stepping in to say, no, no, you need to be aware of this, and you need to abstain from sexual immorality. Read verses 6-8, through Rachel.
1: That no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, and gives his Holy Spirit to you.
0: Okay. Um, This is a common perception, and, and it would have been back then, and it really is today. A common perception about sex is basically that sex between two consenting adults hurts no one. And therefore, what is the problem? Why is, why are Christians... Um, so intent on trying to control people's sex lives. Why do they care so much about who marries who and about who sleeps with who and and about what our kids should be allowed to hear or learn about those things? Sex between two consenting people harms no one and therefore cannot be a wrong thing. That's the major idea. Paul would disagree with that for at least three reasons. One of them is here and we're going to get to the other two in the second half of this. First is, he says this, it is God's will that you would abstain from sexual immorality, and then he says in verse 6, and that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. He says, Paul says, that sexual immorality inevitably leads to the breakdown in God's family. That sexual immorality is not a harmless activity that you actually that you transgress and that you, he says wrong, the word wrong is literally like defraud or take advantage of your brother or your sister in sexual immorality, um, that you are tearing at um, the heart of a family. He uses that word of your brothers, of your sisters. You're taking advantage of them. Um, now, he, he could, when he says you're taking advantage of your brothers and sisters. You're defrauding them. What what is he talking about? What is he specifically referring to? And there could be a number of things that Paul has in mind. He could have in mind adultery, in which one person, say, steals the wife of his Christian brother. That's defrauding his brother. That's taking advantage of his brother. Not to mention it is defrauding his own wife um, when when he cheats on her. So he could be referring to that. He could be referring to using a slave for sex, which was very, very, very common. Um, that when you bought a slave, you had rights to that person, and that meant that you had rights to their body. And Paul says, it does not work that way in the church. Um, that a person who is your slave, and, and you need to know, and we don't have full time to get into it, although we've touched on it, that slavery is a, a slightly different thing than what you picture when you think of slavery in the 1800s in America. It's, it's not quite that. It's not nearly as harsh as that. It looked a little bit more like indentured servitude um, from like Britain in the, 19, or in the 1800s or early 1900s, kind of butlers and maids in a house. Generally, it looked a little bit more like that. And so there could be actually brothers and sisters who were still slaves. And Paul says they're to be treated with dignity in this stuff. Um, so he could be talking about that. He could also actually be talking about... Um, me having sex with another single consenting adult. That too, I believe Paul would say, we both want to do this, Neither of us is married, and so we choose to have sex together. That too, I believe Paul would say, is taking advantage of a brother or sister, defrauding a brother or sister. And, and uh, we'll get a little bit more into this in just a bit. Paul says that um, you don't do this because remember what we said to you, that the Lord is an avenger. When Paul says the Lord, he's, he's talking about God, but he's actually specifically referring to the second member of the Trinity, that is Jesus. So what he's saying is Jesus is an avenger. And, and when you defraud brothers and sisters in this way, do not think that he will not bring judgment for that. Do not think that he does not see and he will not punish such sins. And then he says this, For God called us, not for impurity, but into holiness. That idea of called is actually the calling to the gospel. So he's not talking about a calling to a specific occupation. He's not talking about a calling to a certain way of life. He's talking about God saved you. Which is really interesting. It gives you a, a perspective that we don't often talk about. Why did God save you? To make you holy. That's like the purpose of you becoming a Christian. One of the major purposes of you becoming a Christian is holiness. So Paul says when you refuse that, you are working against God's very purpose in saving you, God's very purpose to make you holy. In fact, He gave us His Holy Spirit to bring us this holiness, Paul says, and you're sinning against that when you do these things. Uh, read verses 9-12, through 12. Rachel.
1: Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one.
0: All right. I almost heard Eric Sheets giving Anthony Butler hallelujah on that last (laughs) verse right there. Um. This, this, is, this is kind of a cool passage. It, it seems like maybe Paul's talk about, hey, we don't wrong our brothers, kind of leads him to this next passage about brotherly love. He says this now about brotherly love, which is what word? Philadelphia. Philadelphia okay. Philo, love, delphia, brother. About brotherly love. This is kind of fascinating we have a town called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so when we say things like brotherly love or something, we kind of just have this idea of good buddies and let's be kind to each other, and which is also kind of weird because Philadelphia is like the opposite of that, right? <laughs> um, but like this is really like... But, but this is our concept is brotherly love is kind of a basic kindness towards your fellow man. That's what brotherly love is. Um, in the first century, no one ever used this word except for to describe siblings, like the love you actually have for your blood brother or blood sister. There's only one other place that we know of that it is used of, and that's, at, that's in, uh, it's like first or second Maccabees. Um, so the Jews would use it in one place we have it used to talk about love for fellow Jews. Paul is using this to talk about across racial boundaries and across economic class. Literally, I'm going to use the very word that I would use to describe my own blood brother. From the same mom, from the same dad, that is how we we view one another as Christians, literal brothers and sisters, and we ought to care for each other to that degree. Paul says, you are doing that. You are already doing that, but I want you to do that more and more. Now, verse 11, um, as much as Eric Sheets may like it, doesn't get quoted a whole lot. I, I urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work With your hands, as we instructed. There you go, as we instructed you. Um, That doesn't. That's that's not. That's not a verse that we tattoo on ourselves very often, right? Um, In a in a day in a day when we desire to stand out, in a day when it looks when when um, we want to be quote unquote radical or or extreme in our faith or whatever that may be, and to make a big difference. This idea of live quietly. Work hard. Um, doesn't, doesn't get touted a whole lot. Um, I, I do believe, I'm, I'm of the persuasion, and I've kind of changed, gone back and forth on this. As of now, I'm of the persuasion that this is a communal command, that these three things are a communal command. Um, so he's maybe talking, he's sort of talking to individuals, but as a church he's mostly talking to them and he says, live quietly, can also be translated, live peaceably. I think what Paul is saying is, in a part of the world where you are under so much persecution for your faith, live in such a way that does not draw unnecessary criticism or attention to yourself. Um, don't, don't, don't be foolish in front of people. Don't be, live a good and quiet life. Um, and then he says, mind your own affairs. Uh, this is not so much a like stay out of people's business. Okay, because Paul has no problem with being involved in people's business um, and, and does believe that as a church we are desire, we ought to carry one another's burdens, which means I need to know about your burdens. Um, in order to do those things. And, and that we ought to confront sin, which means I ought to be able to dig in and know about your sin a little bit. Those things need to be happening. I, I think he's talking a little bit more about like mind the affairs of the church. like Don't get caught up in all the stuff of the world. Don't, don't get caught up in the public sphere and getting all about those things. You have more important things to tend to, and especially in a place where there's a lot of, as we talked about, um, Opposition against the church already. Uh, make sure things are healthy and right in the church before you're looking out to other things. And then the last one, be dependent on no one, would probably refer again to the church as a whole, not being dependent on outsiders. All of this, he says in verse 12, this is so that, for this reason, so that you could walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, that you would um, give the church a good reputation for those around you. And, and I don't think this Paul is talking about just draw yourself back and have nothing to do. No, he's, he's already praised the Thessalonians for their spreading the gospel. But Paul believes that if we live in this kind of way, that it aids us in being able to spread the gospel when we live in a way that, um, that, that, that can be respected to some degree. They'll, they'll never fully respect the church um, all the way through. It cannot be because they don't value the same things we do, but, but that we don't do unnecessarily um, awful things to, to keep a good reputation for outsiders. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a couple minute break, and then we're going we're gonna to dig into this idea of sexual immorality and, and what we're referring to and, and why Paul disagrees with the statement that sex between two consenting adults harms no one so take take a couple minute break stretch get a drink whatever you got to do and then uh, we'll get back here and talk some more <laughs> ah work with your hands my bad Jeez, missed it uh, did I have that down <laughs> have notes on that you said it's not one that people get tattooed off and actually going get it tattooed on. Yes, I like it, dude. Oh, yeah. I like it. You know, in part probably... Prefer straight up room temperature, but I can't. I find I can drink it faster if it's cool, not ice cold. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know so. Ice cold. All right, all right. This actually is like perfect. Like I can. Like this is a gross and lukewarm. Yeah, yeah. What they Makes me wanna
1: pee.
0: Mhm. Supposed to. Supposed to go once. But uh, uh, Morgan was supposed to do the first half tonight, and she had stuff come up. And so mm-hmm. found out this morning that I was going to vote them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, when I tell them that Morgan would have been here, at least all the girls would be really disappointed. Say Scott would. Dodge the bullet there. I just about it. <laughs> is that all off the cuff or did you come up with it? I, I, I did come up with it. Typed it up today. That's right. So, Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So
1: I don't know if you know this, but um, Second Friday worship is a thing that happens at Sunnybrook. And there is there's no teaching, but it's just a time where you can come together um, as, as a body and just sing. And, and um, there's usually some scripture reading and an awesome time, so that's 7:30 tomorrow, um, and that happens year-round. So we want to make sure that you're aware of that. We've got some people who will be going, and we would love to have you to join in on that. Um, the other thing is, if you have not yet signed up for a table group and you want to, we will be having a meeting right after this is over in this far corner. Um, kind of, I guess it's good news, bad news, depending how you look at it. We only have one open girl group left with a couple of spots. Um, but we do have an alternative, so come over there. We'll talk to you about all of that. We also have a grad group, and then we have um, several guide spots open. So, again, if you're interested, right back in this corner as soon as we're done, and we'll talk to you guys about that. Beautiful.
0: All right. You will all be very disappointed to know... Well, yeah, yeah it was It was supposed to be, so the first half tonight was supposed to be the Morgan Weese up here, I know. Um, but she had something come up, and so uh, she had, come some, yeah, something come up like just this morning, and so anyway, so had to deal with me twice tonight, so apologize, and that's okay, we'll, we'll work through it. so) um, so, want to uh, want to talk to you guys for a little bit about this idea that Paul stresses here in First Thessalonians four. On this idea, it is God's will that you would be sanctified, that you would be holy. And then he defines that specifically here as this, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Here is an area, so we we talk about this kind of uh, process of studying the scriptures in which we want to make sure that we understand their context well and really know what's going on there before we can then talk through some of the principles and then relay that into our world. Here is an area where we don't have to do a whole lot of work. Um, here's an area where just like the culture that Paul is living in, um, sexual immorality is the air we breathe and the water we drink um, in, in our culture today. Um, there is virtually no show or no movie in which any character is saving themselves for marriage. In fact, even that idea, to like say that, does that not just sound almost cheesy? Does that not just sound anymore almost goofy? Um, we don't we don't talk like this we don't think like this and it is um sexual sin is normal it is um expected and not just like accepted it is celebrated in our culture um much like that and and in the same way that in the same way that the uh the first century like, Greek world, or I guess classical Greek, which would be leading up to that, but this first century Greco-Roman world, in the same way that they barely use that word porneia, um, like nobody uses the term sexual immorality today. Because there anywhere outside of the church that people are talking about sexual immorality. We don't, we don't have much of a concept for it. We have a concept for like adultery being bad, but we don't even like to use that word. We prefer affair. Um, something sounds less gross about that. Something sounds less harsh about that. And and even even weirdly sickly romantic um, about that idea of an affair. And so we just don't have language for sexual sin hardly anymore. And what is really sad um, is that those who call themselves the church often look almost no different. That, that we follow very much the same pattern of the culture around us, um, that we fall into many of the same traps. And, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but, but just to kind of clarify, so often what we get into the trap of doing is we define our holiness by our distance from the world rather than our proximity to God. So let me say that one more time. We define our holiness by like the arm's length that I keep from the world rather than how close I am to God. And the problem with that is the world is continually, especially in this area of sexual sin, is continuing to move further and further and further away from God. So watch what happens when I keep the world at an arm's length. If God is here, I just keep doing this. And I keep telling myself I'm better than what the world is doing. But I'm not going the same way with the world, but the truth is, I'm actually worse than the world was even ten years ago. Like ten years ago, there were pagan people who wanted nothing to do with God who were living a more sexually moral life than many Christians are, because we're simply defining our holiness by our distance from the world. That is, those of us who even try to distance ourselves from the world. There are many who simply embrace it, and our holiness is defined by our closeness to God. What is, real quick, just to be clear on it, what is sexual immorality? The definition of it comes from the Torah, comes from the Old Testament law, um, and it is specifically, um, or it is basically everything outside of marriage, of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Any sort of sexual activity um, that does not fall within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is considered sexual immorality. And in fact, actually, I would argue that there's actually there can be sexual immorality within the marriage bed. That any time one one partner or one person is is degraded. Or selfishness is a key aspect of sex in a married life, or well, any part one is led to experience more shame, that that in and of itself even is immorality. And so the idea that two married people, as long as you're married, can do whatever they want in a bedroom, I uh, don't fully buy that. I don't fully buy that. And, and so, but, but biblically, it is literally anything, whether that is um, sex with a prostitute, whether that is sex with someone you're not married to, whether that is homosexual sex or heterosex, heterosexual sex or adultery or whatever it is, and um, that falls in this. And of course, Jesus raises the bar higher for his um, followers when he says that if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, and he would say the same to women, if you looked at a man with lustful intent, that you are committing adultery with that person in your heart. So Jesus sets the bar beyond simply intercourse. He, he, he sets the bar at eyes, which has implications for things like how we even touch one another. Um, and so sexual immorality is big and broad, and it is sadly embraced by a number of people within the church um, the, the idea I mentioned earlier is that sex is not that big a deal when it is between two consenting adults because it doesn't hurt anybody. And I told you that Paul disagrees with that at, at all, um, on at least three different levels. Um, he, he disagrees on three different levels. The first is one that we talked about. Paul would say, number one, that sexual immorality transgresses against our brothers and sisters. That's First Thessalonians 4.6 there he just said. it. That no one would transgress and wrong, defraud, take advantage of his brothers or sisters. And, and there's obvious versions of this. Some of the most destructive acts to the people of God, some of the most destructive things that have taken place to the people of God have to do with sexual sin. When I was growing up, I was probably 9 or 10 when um, one elder in my home church um, to hold the wife of another man in our church, and and that uh, that obviously took a sledgehammer to his own family, but also to to this family. But then it 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 really messed up a lot of things within the church family as a whole. When I was a junior in high school, um, my youth minister um, got caught sleeping with one of the girls in our youth ministry, and and. That, that obviously um, destroys the foundation of his family. But not just that, it messes up this girl. And not just that, it messed up his, this girl's family who then stopped going to our church and then stopped going to church um, completely. And then the, the husband and wife ended up getting divorced. And I'm not saying that all of that rests on this. But that, that youth minister's actions had consequences. It had consequences for a lot of my peers who fizzled out of church and, and are not connected to Christ and his body today. And again, it's not, it doesn't rest all on that. But that is there, and so clearly it messes with our brothers and sisters. But I do believe, as I told you this, that this does not simply apply to adultery. And this doesn't just apply to youth ministers sleeping with kids in their youth group as sick and as messed up and as clearly wrong as that is. I think this idea of us defrauding and wronging our brothers and sisters applies to you sleeping with your girlfriend, applies to you sleeping with your boyfriend, that you wrong the church, that you defraud a brother or sister in Christ when you sleep with your girlfriend that you love so much when with their consent you sleep with your boyfriend. I believe this because sex is something that God designed as a way of building and developing intimacy within a a marriage relationship. It is something that is designed to express whole life commitment, and therefore it is designed to take place within a whole life commitment. You sleep with someone, you have sex with someone, In a way that is basically saying I am going to be physically intimate with you. I am going to be physically completely open and vulnerable to you. But the Bible's understanding and the Bible's directive for us is that that should not take place outside of me also saying that I am going to be legally tied to you, financially tied to you, socially tied to you, and in every other way I belong to you. And when I sleep with someone that I am not committed to, when I have sex with someone who I am not... And and hear me, when I say committed, I don't mean you say I love you and I'm committed to you for the rest of your life. I mean you have made a covenant with God himself and that person that I am with you no matter what. When I sleep with someone that I have not made a marriage covenant with, I am using them for my own selfish pleasure. I am taking a brother or sister and I am taking advantage of them, whether it's their consent or not. I am taking advantage of them. Um, and the reason why, and you can say all you want, but no, no, we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. The truth is like, no, you won't. It's not true. Like, like you might, okay, you might. But if that person were to come to you and say, you know what, I think I do still want to date you. I, I do still want to be with you. I even want to marry you. Um... But the truth is, I don't want to like touch you anymore because you kind of, you know, repulse me a little bit. I'm kind of grossed out by you. Um, But I still want to like, I mean, I enjoy your friendship, but I still want to be with you and stuff like that. Like, are you staying or are you leaving? You're leaving, as you should, because a dating relationship is a trial relationship. A dating relationship is not a committed relationship. A dating relationship is one in which you are exploring whether or not you like this person. Sleeping with someone in that relationship is taking advantage of using a brother or sister um, for your own personal gain without a commitment to that person. Um, I also believe this, that the viewing of pornography and other sexual material um, is a defrauding of the church in a taking advantage of the church here's why is because it trains me to see image bearers people made in God's image it trains my eyes and my mind to see them as objects for my own personal gratification and this isn't even like a Christian idea like you, it, it doesn't take very little looking around on the internet at all today or research today. Non Christians are coming around to this statement over and over and over again that pornography is killing people's ability to relate to and care for and love other human beings. That it is destroying their ability for a true intimate relationship with another human because it has trained our brain and hardwired our brain to see human beings as simply people that are there for my, for my personal pleasure, objects to be used for my gratification. And do not think that that will not be true of the way you see your brothers and sisters. Do not think that you can consume sexually explicit imagery, that you can look at pornography, that you can watch movies that lead you down that path, and that that will not affect the way that you treat your brothers and sisters and that you see them in that way. Paul tells Timothy that you ought to treat every Every uh, woman in the church, particularly those your age and younger, that you treat them as younger sisters, that you, that you view them respectfully and kindly, and, and so therefore to, to fill my brain with images that says that women are less than that. Or to fill my brain with images that says that men are less than that. This is primarily a guy's problem, but, but research is showing that this is actually increasingly becoming an issue for women as well. I defraud my brothers and sisters. Christians don't use people. Christians love people. We, we, to, it is unchristian to use people because I am first and foremost called to love them. Um, which means I expend myself for them, not use them and expend them for myself. Um, and so we must be very, very careful and recognize that sexual sin transgresses against our brothers and sisters. Second thing that sexual sin works against is that it dishonors our own bodies, that it sins against ourselves. This is First Thessalonians 4.4. 4. He says that each of you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor that we dishonor our bodies when we live in this way. There's another verse that is somewhat, uh, that is pretty famous. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Paul says this, flee from sexual immorality. That's that word, porneia. Flee from porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Um... There's a lot of debate and a lot of question and a lot of hypothesis about what Paul means by that. What does it mean that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body and that every other sin a man commits goes outside their body? Because technically that's not, that's not actually true. Suicide is against your own body. Um, alcoholism, drugs is against your own body. So, so what does Paul mean when he says that um, sexual sin, sexual immorality is this one area in which we actually sin against our own body and not just on the outside of it? Um, I, I don't know 100%. But it does seem that this truth is rooted in uh, a verse that comes just two verses before it. That's First Corinthians 6 verse 16 and here's what verse 16 says or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for it is written the two will become one flesh so here's what Paul says he's talking to these people in Corinth who are um, engaged in sexual immorality and they're sleeping with prostitutes and Paul says do you not know that when you sleep with a prostitute, that you become one with that person, that you become one flesh with that person? And I think he's talking more uh, about more than just a physical unity there. He's talking about we, what we mentioned earlier, that the design of sex, it is made to create oneness. It is made to create and to bolster and to deepen intimacy. It is made to deepen commitment and trust. And it does that. Sex deepens intimacy, and it deepens commitment, and it deepens trust. That's why last semester when I'm talking to a girl in my office who's telling me all the awful things her boyfriend is doing and how far away he's drifted from the, from the man that she first thought she was going to be with. And, and when she's describing all these awful things and, and yet is still with him, that's why my first question that I didn't even have to think twice about is, um, you're sleeping with him, aren't you? And and the answer was, of course, yes. Because that's, that's what sex does, is it deepens and heightens a sense of commitment and oneness and intimacy with another person. That's what it's designed to do. That's the way God made it to do that. And so, when we utilize sexual activity, when we use our bodies towards sex outside of a real committed relationship, it actually eventually works to cheapen and undermine it. It takes this wonderful aspect of our bodies and it sins against it. This very thing that God designed in us to create the deepest level of intimacy with another person, what that says to us when we continually sleep with people who do not end up with us, it says to us that my deep oneness with this person is not real. That, that deep, deep intimacy and commitment cannot exist within these relationships. We sin against the very design of our bodies. This again plays out with pornography and, and lust as well. Um, as we talk about that, the more and more I consume pornography, the more and more it works against my own ability for intimacy with another human being. It works against my idea or my ability to jump into this. Men, if I could speak to you for a second, do not buy into the lie that pornography will be a filler, um, will fill the, the void that you have in you towards sexual satisfaction until the day you get married. That I know that I'm not supposed to sleep with people until I got married and so one day I will have a natural healthy outlet for this in my wife. But until then, this is the way that I can kind of keep myself pure, keep myself from going too far with other people is through this. And once I get in a marriage relationship and I have someone that I can actually be having sex with, then that will fill that need for me and I won't need this stuff anymore. That is a lie. And what you will find is that all of this over here is not feeling feeling a natural desire for sex. Actually, it is a natural desire in the sense that we are naturally selfish people. It is a natural desire, and you are feeding a natural broken selfishness in you that is nothing, that has nothing to do with what sex was designed for. Sex is the self giving of myself to another person as a picture of and as a deepening of my whole life giving of myself to that other person. And so when, when I use pornography and when I use imagery as a taking from another person, I am working against the exact opposite of what sex is supposed to be. And what guys will find, what you will find, um, those of you who think that this is something that will hold you off until the day you're married, is that that does not go away when you get married. In fact, more than likely, it will increase. And your desire for sexually sinful things will increase. Again, I speak to guys here, but I'm speaking to girls as well, recognizing that in a room this size, there are bound to be some of you who are struggling with this or dealing with this as well. And, and it will be something that harms your marriage. And and it will be something that undermines your ability to grow close to your own wife. And it, and it can have some disastrous consequences in, in it. Um, But there is another way, actually. There is another way that when we engage in sexual immorality, it sins against our bodies. Or there's another reason. Let me read to you verse 18 again, and then let me read to you the verse that comes right after it. He says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The other reason that I sin against my own body is because Paul says, my body was designed for the glorification of God. And when I, th- when I instead take it and use it for the degradation of my body, for when I use it um, to just please myself and do dishonorable things, I'm working against the very intent of my body. And and therefore, that leads us to the third reason. Paul says that it transgresses against our brothers and sisters. It defrauds them. It sins against our own bodies. But number three, sex between two consenting adults or one person looking at a screen in the privacy of their own bedroom disregards the God who we belong to. That's verse 8 in our chapter today, verse Thessalonians 4. Whoever ignores this teaching is not ignoring man. You are disregarding God the one who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And, and it rebels against the God who saved us and bought us. This is actually the truth. So I said this. It works against our bodies because our bodies were designed to bring glory to God because my body doesn't belong to me. And, and this is um, true. So God created my body, therefore it belongs to Him. But for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are in Christ, that is actually true twice over. My body belongs to Him because He made it for His own glory and for His own purposes. Therefore, I am supposed to use it to honor Him. But secondly, my body, though it was lost and broken, was redeemed by the blood of Jesus, bought again at a very high price, 1 Corinthians 6 says. And therefore, therefore I ought to do everything I can and use every bit of my body I can to honor God rather than sin and work against Him. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that sexual immorality, as I said, causes us to disregard the God we belong to, verse 8. It causes us to rebel against God's very will for us, which is, first, is, which is verse uh, 3. It actively works against one of the major reasons that God saved us, 4-7. He has called you for holiness and when we, when we engage in sexual sin we work against God's purpose in saving us and 1 Corinthians 6 says this crazy and profound and sad truth that when I sleep with someone who is not my spouse that I am actually taking Christ's very own body this is his and I am uniting it with something sinful Paul says in this case you are igniting Jesus with the prostitute I'm using Jesus' body to sleep with that person. That I'm using Jesus' eyes to look at those images on the screen. I'm using Jesus' hands to touch someone improperly. Um, and, And so he says that those things belong to Jesus and I'm doing these things, I'm uniting Christ's own body with wicked things. Sexual sin, like any other sin, but I believe probably to a greater degree, numbs our ability to enjoy God numbs our ability to seek Him and know Him. Um, if, you, if you feel like God's Word is cold and dead to you, like if this feels lifeless when you read it, if you show up to church and it's hard to sing and really have much like heart for God in it, if your prayer life is dying, this, this may this may be a reason why. You may want to look at your own life and look at your own heart and see if there is sexual sin there. All sin, I believe, numbs our hearts, but sexual sin, because of its immediate gratification and because of its addiction to the pleasure, causes us to be caught so much up in that that we lose our ability to take pleasure in real things like God Himself. Um, and the other, and the other wicked thing, the other way that this turns us against God is, or, or the the evil of sexual sin is that the enemy, Satan, is, is a master at using sexual sin first to entice us with it, and then to shame us with it. Maybe like no other sin that you may experience, sexual sin will draw you in before you know it, and then will be used to bring, to heap shame on you and to heap a feeling that I cannot come before God, to heap this feeling that I'm a hypocrite and I should not stand in church and sing songs out to God with the way that I've been living my life. For all of these reasons, I believe that sexual immorality, that sexual sin is tearing the church apart. And my plea with you and my, my begging of you tonight is that you would not let that happen in this corner of the church in this pocket of the church, that sexual sin would not be something that marks us, brothers and sisters. That it would not be something that dominates us. That it would not be a way that we wrong one another here in this church. That we would do everything that we can to fight it. At this stage in your life, in college, this question, we talk about it, is one that you will wonder and ponder over and over and over again. What is God's will for my life? The answer, holiness. His will for you is holiness. If you want to know His will, then be holy. Then look at His Word and act holy. Don't ask these questions while you're looking at things online that you know you shouldn't be looking at. Don't ask these questions while you're doing things with your girlfriend or boyfriend that you know you shouldn't be doing. Don't ask these questions when you're living in a sexually immoral way. You don't want His will for your life. His will is holiness. And we work against that when we live in sin This is always a difficult topic to discuss because um, I believe that when I teach this, when we as a church teach this, that we ought to be as hard on sexual sin as the Bible is. And that we ought to be as passionate about our own personal holiness as God is. And so I want to speak strongly against it and recognize in full disclosure that I speak against myself. As someone who is still battling sexual temptation and working through what it looks like to grow in holiness in this. And I want to speak difficult and hard truths about this. And yet at the exact same time, um, we cannot forget about grace. And it is so vital and important to remember that the weight and the um, greatness and the size of God's grace will always overpower um, the devil's shame and the shame of sin, that it is bigger than that. And we need to be able to keep those things in mind as we teach through these things. There are um, basically four kinds of Christians in this room tonight. And, and I'm not saying that everybody in here is a Christian, or everybody is a follower of Jesus, and if you're not, this is a really weird night to show up for, right? <laughs> um, like, I, I get that. Um, but, but there are basically four kinds of, of Christians in this room. Um, there are those who have done some things um, sexually, um, whether that is physically with their body or with another person or with things that they have looked at. There are things, people who have done some things sexually that they deeply regret and have repented of. And then there are some in here who are still struggling somewhat regularly, at least, you know. Um, weekly or monthly struggling with this, but they are repentant. And when they slip, they hate it and they turn against their sin and they repent and they seek God's grace in those things. So that's the second group. There's a third group that is consistently giving in. Like every night looking at pornography on their phone or on their computer or every time they go out with their boyfriend or girlfriend going further than they know they should go. Um, And yet they also feel deeply shameful about that and guilty about that. They don't like it, but they're doing it regularly. And then there's a fourth group. Um, I, hope, I hope not in this room, but, but there's a decent chance. A fourth group who, who embraces their sexual sin and honestly does not care. I said the prayer, I'm saved, God's got it taken care of, I'm going to live this way. And, and honestly, they don't care. And I have to remember whenever I talk that like, um, I'm speaking to four different kinds of people and they're all in different places and some people have committed some, some sins before that they deeply regret and it keeps them up at night and they still don't feel like they're forgiven and yet they've repented of it and they've, they've tried to live differently and, and I don't want you to carry that shame around. You don't have to. That's been paid for. And yet there are others who, who are walking in sin and don't care. And, and those in group four, um, I don't want to give comfort to. Those who, em, who embrace their sin and have no problem with it don't have any right, biblically, to feel comfortable in that. are not supposed to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, that's what kind of brings on this whole 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality, is in chapter 5, he's talking about someone in the church who is sleeping with their stepmom, I believe it is. And... Uh, and, and they're a leader in the church and they're kind of proud of it and they're embracing it. And Paul says, kick that person out of the church. Don't comfort them. Don't come to them and tell them it's okay. Get them out. If they're going to live in their sin and revel in it and be proud of it. They, they, he says, expel the immoral brother. And so the Bible doesn't offer a lot of comfort to those in group four. And those in group three um, who are regret it and hate it, but are going back to it like night after night, date after date, whatever that may be, um, there is some comfort given to you. And, and I do believe there is grace for you and, 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 and God wants to restore you. But, but what I would caution against is being, being wary of having worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. As the Bible describes two different kinds of sorrow. And there is a sorrow that feels bad about what I did, but doesn't really, when I look deep down in my heart, have much desire to change. Doesn't result in real repentance. Doesn't result in real obedience. It's simply a guilt that I feel tonight, and I'm gonna feel it again tomorrow night when I inevitably do this again. And 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 so I would caution you and ask and tell you to. To seek the Holy Spirit and ask God to reveal to you whether you're experiencing a worldly sorrow or a true godly sorrow that is brought on by the Holy Spirit. But for all of you, whether you're in group one, two, three, or four, this message is the same, and I believe that it is really important. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, and this comes a little bit before what we've been reading. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, says this so huge. Paul says, Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, and here's the first thing he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, uh, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11 is so key. And such were some of you. That is, the NIV says, and that is what you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, listen, the sexually immoral don't get the kingdom of God. But then he says this, and that is what you, past tense, were, but you've been washed You've been sanctified. Again, that's our word. You've been made holy. You've been justified. All of that sin has been, for those of us who are in Christ, all of that sin, no matter what ugly or wicked or awful things you've done, all of that was nailed to the cross and has been done away with. That's not who you are anymore. And the implication with that is not just that's not who you are anymore, but that's also not how you have to live anymore. You have the ability because you've been justified and sanctified and washed and the Holy Spirit is at work in you that you do not have to continue living in this sin anymore. You do not have to continue walking this way anymore. You're different now, brothers and sisters. And if you're in group one, you need to walk in the peace of that grace. And if you're in group two, you need to walk in the peace of that grace and lean into the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you're in group three, the same for you. Lean into the Holy Spirit. And if you're in group four, I pray that that convicts you, that you would not take lightly what Jesus has done for you and that you would seek to go after Him and to, to live out the holiness that He gives you. Let me give you just a few suggestions in fighting sin real briefly and then we'll wrap up. Actually... Kaylee, if you want to start getting ready and, and uh, bringing stuff up here. Um, a few suggestions for you for fighting sin quickly. Um, if you are struggling with this area, you need to, no matter how hard this may be, you need to confess that sin to someone. Um, I say this, sin thrives in secrecy. And you will not overcome this by yourself. And so you need to find someone tonight a brother or sister that you trust that you can confess this sin to and tell them where you are struggling in this and ask for their help in this. And I would say probably, probably more than one, probably a couple people that you need to talk to um, about this and, and, and ask them to walk alongside you in this. Um, the second thing, and this is sort of generic, but this is take whatever drastic steps are necessary. Um, the Bible uses it this way, put to death, Sin in yourself, and so that, that might mean for some of you that you don 't get to watch a lot of the same movies your friends watch. It might mean for you that you don 't get to watch a lot of the shows your friends watch. It might mean for you um, that you're, uh, that you and your boyfriend or girlfriend like you don 't get to go on dates where you 're alone anywhere um, that you're going to, that you 're going to always have to stay in public places. Um, and so you, you, need to, you need to do whatever steps may be drastic, but whatever steps are necessary to kill those. Um, got this question. Our leaders are reading through this book, Holding Our Holiness, by Kevin DeYoung. And he, he gave me something I never thought of, I don't think, before. When it comes to, there's a little power button right on the side, of that big thing that you press, and it'll come on. Um, he gave me this really interesting idea. How do you know if a movie or a show is something that you shouldn't be watching? Or how do you know if something that you've done with your boyfriend or girlfriend is too far? That's the big question, right? How far is too far? Um, those things. One of, this is one of his major criteria. He asks, can I, after I'm finished watching something or spending time with my girlfriend or whatever, can I legitimately thank God for that good gift? Because that's, that's instructions to us that every good gift is from God and so I ought to be able to thank Him for those things. When I'm done watching that movie, can I honestly say to Him, thank you for that, God. Thank you for the way that built me up. Thank you for the way that edified me. That's a great question to ask. Um, the last thing I would say is this. Dwell on the Gospel often. Um, you worship your way into sin and, and therefore you worship your way out of sin. Um, that what you need, we talked about this at the retreat, is a a new and greater affection to push that, that love for sexual sin out of your heart and out of your mind. What you need is to regularly focus on the truths about who Jesus is and what He's done. That's our, that's our key there. Gospel-centered life. Letting Jesus' work and identity shape every area of your life. Regularly focus on who He is and what He's done for you. Take scriptures that you can meditate on and that you can think on and that you can care about and, and let that well up in you a desire to do what is right and a desire to be holy. Um, think about this truth. That is what you were but you were sanctified. You were justified. You were washed by Jesus and His Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you just a few minutes to think through those things and to ask God to reveal to you where there is sin in your own heart and life and to ask Him to to walk alongside you in taking whatever steps you may need to take in in fighting for holiness um, alongside His Holy Spirit working in you. And then we'll sing some songs about that. So...